7.33. So with coronavirus concerns continuing to mount in the United States, we welcome on the line Dr. Krutika Kupali, an infectious disease physician and fellow at the Johns Hopkins Centre for Health Security. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've been hearing about some of the travel chaos of people trying to return to the United States, and there's been a lot on President Trump's condition. He tested negative for COVID-19, just to remind ourselves. And and actually, what's the situation like in the United States? How bad is the outbreak at this point? Sure, that's a great question. So currently... uh, The United States has uh, 3,244 cases and 61 deaths as of today. Uh, I fully expect that with testing capabilities and capacities increasing over the coming days that those numbers will go up. Um, Where I am in California currently, uh, there are 247 cases with over 11,000 people self-monitoring. So COVID-19 cases are rising um, in the face of efforts by the government, by President Trump, to take this far more seriously than they seem to be doing a few weeks ago. What do you make of how effective this travel ban might be? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think the travel ban um, uh, is being put in place for a couple of reasons. I think one of the things that they're trying to do is decrease the burden on the healthcare system system here in the United States. Um, you know, we've seen before that travel bans don't work. Um, however, they can help to slow um, an outbreak as you are trying to ramp up your healthcare system. So it sounds like from what I've heard that the plan is, is around this is to try and help uh uh, prevent um, more positive cases coming into the country, so it helps decrease the burden on the healthcare system and gives the United States a bit more time to prepare. The other thing that's happening is that major events are being cancelled, sport, for example. Also, just all manner of cultural events are being postponed or cancelled altogether. Is this something that is also very helpful at this point? Uh, so I think that uh, canceling these events is a good idea, especially because uh, the thought is, is that, you know, we are moving more and more into a mitigation approach. Uh, so we want to try and promote uh, social distancing. I think people are hearing this uh, term more and more. So really trying to keep people away from each other. And so by canceling sporting events like uh, NBA basketball, um, NCAA tournament, and uh, things like Broadway shows, things like that. Uh, it, it doesn't give people a choice about whether or not to go. The choice is made for them. One of the biggest criticisms, though, on the medical front has been testing kits and whether they can be relied upon and whether there are nearly enough. President Trump said 1.4 million test kits will be available within a week and 5 million within the next month. Where does that leave testing and the situation at this point? So um, testing has definitely been the biggest challenge thus far. Uh, Testing is getting better, but we're definitely not where we need to be. Uh, So part of the reason testing has gotten better has been um, not just with uh, more public health labs coming up and being able to run uh, tests. However, um, we now have commercial labs that have numerous tests in place 
um, and also uh, numerous academic centers that have developed their labs. So there are various ways to get testing, and now it's a plan of coordinating this and being able to manage um, the high demand for testing and getting patients tested. There have been priorities in testing then focusing on people with severe symptoms. Does that in itself skew the overall figure? Because you said, you know, we're, we're at less than 3,500 cases in the United States at this point. But if people have not been widely tested, it, it's not an irrelevant figure, but not, uh, not particularly one that we can rely on based on the number of tests. Sure, I would agree with that. I think that's a fair statement. So I think that um, as hopefully this week uh, comes, comes and we are able to get more testing up and going, uh, I think we'll have a better idea of what's going on. Um, if you don't test, you don't know. So uh, we, we need to get those tests done. We need to uh, get a better idea of what's going on um, in our communities. Uh, by doing that, then we can have better public health interventions to try and slow the spread of the disease. Do you have any educated guess or forecast of how significant the outbreak might be beyond what you mentioned earlier, though, at this point? Because, you know, some officials have gone on record with big numbers. Uh, Are you hesitant Mm -hmm. to do that personally? I am. I'm hesitant to do that personally for a couple of reasons. One, it's not my area of expertise. I'm not a forecaster. I'm not a modeler. Um, And second, I think, again, because without knowing... Uh, what our numbers are right now, I think it's hard to make some of those projections. And I think that, um, you know, these public health measures, part of the reason we have these public health measures and we try and promote them and um, put them in place is to see if we can help prevent the spread of the infection. Uh, So I think that, at least from my perspective, without that being my area of expertise, I would feel uncomfortable making those types of projections. Yeah, I understand. And we have plenty of other people who are happy to make those projections and we just have to try to uh, skirt those as best we can with the qualification always that these are, even in the most educated cases, uh, still subject to various twists and turns. And, And for example, you look at the South Korean case, there were many people who thought even at this point we might be approaching the millions or certainly high hundreds of thousands um, and thankfully we're still under 10,000 um, so obviously if a country responds in the right way it's, it's possible to contain this outbreak and, and we can say that with a certain level of confidence with the amount of testing that's been happening here. Um, one of the other interesting differences though Whilst we've seen images of hoarding in the United States, we haven't seen that in supermarkets so much here, but we have seen people trying to hoard face masks and certainly queuing up for a long period of time to buy face masks. Face masks, as a term, is not very accurate, but really I'm talking about uh, N95, that sort of thing. But Anything really below that seems to be acceptable for people who are desperate to get hold of anything. What's the uh, U.S. feeling on masks at the moment? Sure. I think um, that's another hot-button topic that I tackle almost on a daily basis here. So um, there are two types of main masks, the N95 masks and then the uh, surgical masks that we see people wearing. And the overall feeling, at least here in the United States, is that um, as it is, we touch our hands, um, our hands to our faces at least 13 to 23 times an hour. And so 
rather than wearing a mask, which can sometimes be ill-fitting, uncomfortable, um, and actually can serve as a way for us to infect ourselves by doing so. It's one of the reasons why we are um, very keen on promoting um, good hand hygiene. That in and of itself is the most important thing. And the feeling is, is that you know, when you wear a mask, it can actually cause a false sense of security, and people may not be as adamant about keeping their hands clean and being mindful about not touching their faces. Um, finally, surgical masks don't prevent droplets. If you look at somebody wearing them, uh, the sides of them are still open, and so things can, and droplets especially, can get in from the sides. And N95 masks, to actually be uh protective correctly, um, you have to be fit tested for them every year. As healthcare workers, we are fit tested for them. And when we're worn properly, they're actually tight fitting and not very comfortable. And so most of the people that I see wearing them out and about in public aren't wearing them correctly. And again, uh, they offer a false sense of comfort. Mm. Probably most importantly is that you know, we have a shortage of these valuable resources at this time, and we really need to make sure to preserve them for our frontline workers so uh, they can protect themselves so we have these um, valuable people to help care for the sick. We've got a situation in Korea, though, that is slightly different in, in the respect that people were already wearing masks quite regularly for air pollution reasons. I know in the United States, when you search information about things like N95 masks, usually before this COVID-19 situation, it would be more in relation to workplace exposures and protecting yourself from that sort of thing, in addition to healthcare settings. So I just wonder whether your attitude would be any different if you were a healthcare professional in this country, a country that has capacity to make 12 million masks a day and is looking to increase that capacity and where people are already, okay, maybe not being fit tested, but quite familiar with the idea of protecting themselves from air pollution. Well, when you're talking about it from an air pollution standpoint, that's a completely different issue that you're thinking about right, then people here are wearing them because they think it's going to prevent them from an infection. So those are two very different things that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and just just to clarify, people here are certainly wearing them because of coronavirus. I, I don't want to suggest that everyone who's wearing them is doing so because of air pollution. I, I, I mean to say that there was some familiarity here already with wearing them for air pollution reasons and, and actually for sort of protecting people from their cold as well. It, it, it's just culturally more widely practiced here for several years. Sure, that's understandable. And obviously, if you're sick, or maybe it's not obvious, but if you are sick, then by all means, it's helpful to wear a mask. But the wearing of the mask when you're sick is to prevent your respiratory droplets that are contagious from getting to other people. Um, Obviously, the culture is different um, uh, in Korea than it is here. Uh, However, I do think that I would be making the same recommendations even if we had an endless supply uh, of masks because it's the same things that we recommend for other respiratory illnesses. Um, When I'm seeing patients with um, things like influenza or adenovirus or other respiratory viral illnesses that we see quite commonly, um, it would be the exact same uh, recommendation I would give them. Let's talk a bit more about the government's response. For example, President Trump declaring COVID-19 a national emergency at the end of last week. What practical impact has that had and and will it yet likely to have? Yeah, so um, what 
President Trump did on Friday was he invoked what we call the Stafford Act, which is an authority for most federal disaster response activities. Um, this is the government's main mechanism for responding to major disasters and emergencies. And in this particular case, it allows them to tap into um, monetary resources that are currently more than $40 billion. So they can do things like buy medical supplies and equipment. It also instructs state governments to set up emergency operations centers, directs hospitals nationwide to activate their emergency preparedness contingency plans, and allows um, the Secretary, um, uh, um, Health Secretary Alex Azar uh, to waive regulations that could hinder health professionals' response capacities. Uh, this has also helped um, activate FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, um, to help with logistics, um, such as transporting residents if needed, putting up temporary medical facilities, which are all very important at this time. Are there any other particular concerns that you'd like to address for us? I, I know that you've already, in, in other media um, comments, given your concerns over accelerating spread of the virus in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, and, and also you've criticised the Transportation Security Administration and United Airlines for improper safety measures. I don't know if that situation's changed at all since you made those comments, but c- can you leave us with any lasting impressions of where you'd like to see improvements? I, um, I think there's a number of things that we can always continue to improve upon. I think, um, again, as this outbreak evolves, we still need to think about how to better utilize our healthcare system, how we're going to handle the large numbers of patients, um, making better information more accessible online, having better guidance. Um, I think uh, that's, you know, lends to some of the confusion. I think one of the big challenges we're seeing here is um, younger patients don't seem to think that they're at risk for getting the disease. Um, And I think we do need to emphasize to them that even though older populations are at risk, um, more so than they are, younger people can still get the disease. And also they can be carriers and potentially transmit that to their parents or grandparents. And so we really need to take a community-wide approach at this point if we're going to contain this outbreak. Um, And I think lastly, we also need to think about our disenfranchised patient populations. Um, you know, we have homeless populations here who are at risk, uh, patients who receive dialysis, uh, prisoners, and uh, people at our border facilities. And uh, we need to think about those people as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Kupali, for joining us today and offering your own take on the U.S. situation and also how it relates to the rest of the world. Good luck. Thank you.